verses 1 to 4. When the word of the Lord came to me, saying, What do you mean by using this proverb concerning the land of Israel, saying, The fathers eat the sour grapes, but the children's teeth are set on edge? As I live, declares the Lord God, you are surely not going to use this proverb in Israel anymore. Behold, all souls are mine, the soul of the father, as well as the soul of the son is mine, the soul who sins will die. Okay. Now, uh, what were they saying? Children are punished for the sins of the father. And what were they trying to do by that, by saying that? They weren't the guilty ones their fathers were. Trying to pass the buck. Trying to shift the blame. Trying to present themselves as the victim. victim. Uh, we would never in our society think about doing something like that, would we? <laughs> you know? Um, what do we blame our teeth being set on edge on a lot of times in our society? Genetic. G our genes, absolutely. Or? It's those video games I played as a child. <laughs> or? Parents, schools, employers, personality type, chemical stress, <laughs> poverty, etc. And he's saying you won't use that anymore. By the way, that, that proverb in the original is six words. It's very, very succinct. Um, because he says the soul who sins will die. You know, that every person has a relationship with God, and you are being judged by what you do. Don't blame this punishment on your fathers. We must not try to shift the blame. We must not deny personal responsibility for what we do. Comments and questions. That's exactly right. Alright, comments, questions? I mean, in a sense, it's reaffirming the worth of each individual soul. It's not just, you know, because, I mean, if the proverb were true, then that would say that, that God doesn't care about the son. They're not as important as the father, so we're protecting the father and blaming someone else. That's, which is not what it's saying. Mm -hmm. Alright, he goes through a rather detailed case study here that defends the concept of personal responsibility. And we have sort of a um, three-generation analysis. So, would somebody read 5 to 18? But if a man is righteous and practices justice and righteousness, and does not eat the mountain shrines, or lift up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, or defile his neighbor's wife, or approach a woman during her menstrual period, if a man does not oppress anyone, but restores to the debtor his pledge, does not commit robbery, 
robbery, but gives his bread to the hungry and covers the naked with clothing. If he does not lend money on interest or take increase, if he keeps his hand from iniquity and executes true justice between man and man, if he walks in my statutes and my ordinances so as to deal faithfully, he is righteous and will surely live, declares the Lord God. Then he may have a violent son who sheds blood, and who does not, who does any of the things, of these things, to a brother, though he himself did not do any of these things. That, that is, he even eats at the mountain shrines and defiles his neighbor's wife, oppresses the poor and needy, commits robbery, does not restore a pledge, but lifts up his eyes to the aisles and commits abominations. He lends money on interest and takes increase. Will he live? He will not live. He will. He has committed all these abominations. He will surely be put to death. His blood will be on his own head. Now behold, he has a son who has observed all his father's sins, which he has committed. The observing does not do likewise. He does not eat at the mount shrines, or lift up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, or defile his neighbor's wife, or oppress anyone, or retain a pledge, or commit robbery. But he gives his bread to the hungry and covers the naked with clothing. He keeps his hand from the poor, does not take interest or increase, but executes my ordinances and walks in my statutes. He will not die for his father's iniquity. He will surely live. As for his father, because he practiced extortion, robbed his brother, and did what was not good among the people, behold, he will die for his iniquity. We start in 5 to 9 with what? Righteous person. Now, look at the definition of a righteous person. First of all, in verse 5, he's a man who does what? Practices justice and righteousness. That's the general principle. In the first half of verse 6, you define him how? Not an idolater. Yes, he worships properly, he's not an idolater. In the last part of 6, you define him by? Yes, and, and particularly dealing with marital fidelity and moral purity. And then in 7 and 8, what? He doesn't rob people and he gives things. Yeah, he's no, benevolent to not greedy. and not greedy to others. And so in 9, in general, if he walks in my statutes and my ordinances so as to deal faithfully, if he obeys me, then what will happen to that righteous man? He will live. He will live. I mean, that's the way it is. If you do what's right, you're going to live. I don't care about anything else. God's going to judge you on the base of your life. But now, what happens to, what, what's the deal with this guy's boy? He is a scoundrel. He's a mess. I mean, he does everything pretty much the opposite of what his, his daddy did. You cannot ride in on the coattails of a model father. The father's righteousness won't benefit the son. You can't say, well, I've got a good father. Well, you may have. Didn't help you any, did it? Hmm. What will happen to this scoundrelly son? He'll die. He'll die. And we would understand the justice of that. It wouldn't be right to exonerate a rascal just because he had a good dad. I think it is worth saying here that we must not forever cast suspicion on the godly parents of wicked kids. 
I think we are too mechanical in our assumption that if there's a bad apple, what did the parents do wrong? Now, I believe that parents have an influence on their children. I think the Bible teaches that pretty clearly. But I do not think that's what we ought to do with a bad person. I don't think we ought... The first thing we think about when, you know, John Doe is bad, wonder what his parents did wrong. I don't think that's what we ought to think first. I think we ought to think, what did John do wrong? He's the one who's doing it. Because I think we perpetuate this mentality that, well, it's really because of the way my parents treated me. If you are accountable before God, nothing is excusable on the basis of what your parents did. I'm not... I've got a responsibility before God directly. And there's a passel of people with lousy parents who've lived faithfully before God. You are not, you know, inherently depraved because you have bad parents. And I, I think that's important. It's one of the things I've tried to emphasize with even young people is, you know, I don't know, your parents may do this wrong, they may do that wrong. Who knows? Most parents do something wrong. But you stand before God as an individual. And, you know, sometimes you have good parents who have rotten kids. Can you think of any? Do you have to mention that? I mean, biblically. That was going to be bad. That was good, though. Saul and Jonathan. Okay, Saul and Jonathan, that was the opposite. Oh, dear. Weren't well, we think of the kings. I was thinking that. We have Hezekiah and Ammon and Manasseh all right there. Uh, Hezekiah has a lousy kid in Manasseh. Hezekiah was really pretty good, and Manasseh was really bad. You know what I think is even a better illustration? Josiah and his dad. Josiah and his sons. His dad as well. Well, but I'm saying good parent, parent bad, bad kids. Kid. Josiah had three sons that we know about. Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, and Zedekiah. And they were all three lousy. Oh. But Josiah was outstanding. You know who I think the best example is? Samuel and his sons, Eli and his sons. Samuel and his sons. David. About God. About who? God. She got any lousy kids? He's he's the perfect father. (laughs) Sometimes his children don't respond, don't correspond properly with his nurture and discipline. So while I do think the Bible gives a role to parents and emphasizes the importance of a parent's role in the shaping of the children, I think that is true. But I think once the child is accountable before God, the question is no longer, well, where did this parent go wrong? Or the child say, well, you know what my parents did to me. I think the individual person is responsible before God. I mean, people will do that till they're 40 or 60 or 80 or whatever. And it's like, well, you know, do you ever actually become your own person? And I understand that it is required biblically for an elder to have believing children and to manage his household well. But it, but, and, and I think there's there's something to being able to, to do well with your kids that may be an indicator of whether or not you can do well fathering a church. But 
But that's not saying you can't be a fine Christian and not even saying that you did wrong when your parents turn out or when your kids turn out badly. Now, obviously there's some cases in which you can certainly see like father like son, you know, like mother like daughter as you see in Ezekiel 16. That certainly happens. And it may be that I have lousy kids because I raised them lousy. But that's not always the case. Comments or questions to verse 13. What do you have in 14 to 18? The good man, the wicked man's son who is righteous. Yes! <laughs> man, I mean, he uh, observed, verse 14, all his father's sins which he had committed, <laughs> and observing does not do likewise. I mean, I think he saw what his father had gotten into, and he decided to be different. Sometimes that's exactly what happens. You see what a mess your parents have made of their lives and you decide that you don't want any part of that. And we, you, we've already mentioned some that are like that. You know, Ammon had Josiah. Ahaz had Hezekiah. And so forth and so on. Um, the fact is, God deals with every person individually. Hello. Thank you Hello. Most. Hey, John. Wow. It was the I got two. I got two. I got none. Mom and Dad got like four. Or three, three or four. But you got yeah, four. Evan, Evan, and Caleb. Caleb. You got Caleb. Caleb Churchill. I thought you said Evan. Sounds like Caleb. Caleb called too. Mm. Just a little bit ago. You got more than that. And I got Ariel, Chelsea, and Hannah. That's and Ariel. And so you got four. So you beat James. But I think that's what Larry wins. He got Larry and the person who was trying to find and Sandra. Sandra. And Sandra and the person who was trying to find somebody other. Yeah, and Michael. Oh, that was Michael. Okay. And Larry got Well, it's only four. But he had another one. They didn't answer. Yeah. No, that's John out there. He's on the well, he yeah, had yeah, he had another yeah, yeah, yeah. a while back, so he didn't answer. Oh, he did, didn't he? Yeah, he did. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I'm losing, but at least I've got some. Yeah. Oh, yeah, right, yeah, this is what I'm going to call this session. Yeah, we did. Well, if I had and two, and you had three, three, and they had four, that was five. between three and five. That's like over <laughs> ten phone calls. Chris got here back. It's insane. Like, twelve phone calls? During your study, she's got four, got two, got two, he's got five. Some of it, roughly. So five, nine, twelve, yeah. During the study with Roughly. Well, fourteen. Oh, Gary called. Fourteen? Yeah, 14, and someone called you. Yeah. Okay, roughly. We're not completely sure about everybody's phone calls. Wow. It was insane. Well, <laughs> Some of them were the same people, though. We don't have any phone calls. Repeat people. <laughs> it was great. And Sandra called you and then Gary. Yes. And someone, did someone call mom during your study, James? Yeah, my, no, my mom called me. Yeah, <laughs> his mom called him. So, <laughs> so we're doing well today. We're popular. She forgot that I was coming up here. She did? Where is she, she working for you? Yeah. <laughs> your brace is off. Uh, after camp. Oh, Mindy gets her off before camp. Ooh-hoo. <laughs> she can't imitate you at camp. <laughs> when do you get them off? Uh, I don't know. Next Wednesday. Wait till tomorrow. Yeah, we'll see. Gary, Sean is that? Your father. Sorry about it. 
Which John? Why doesn't sound like John Libby? Alright. Uh, so, where were we? The son was good. The son was good. He was ready, he won. And so he'll live. He's not going to be judged by the wickedness of his father. You know, so you can have a bad father and still do good. So you can't use the bad father as an excuse. That's exactly right. Which you sometimes hear people wanting to do that too. Which is what he started with. Not your bad father's fault. Because really, if you look at Ezekiel, they're just as bad. I mean, in the time of the destruction, when we see those elders worshiping the idols in the temple, and we see the woman facing that one god, I forget his name, and the other men who are committing sacrifices and things like that, even in the day and age when the temple is being destroyed, they're still wicked, and therefore they will be punished. But this has always been a problem for me. Well, 14 years. It's sad that Jerusalem was destroyed because of Manasseh's sins. Now, how does that fit? If the sons are not punished for their father's sin, how is Manasseh, even though it was not during his generation, responsible for the fall of Jerusalem? Well, that's a good question. I don't know that I can give you a conclusive answer. I'll give you a couple things to think about. Um, I, Manasseh's um, behavior basically corrupted the nation. I mean, even though Josiah tried to do what's right, Jeremiah 3 says it wasn't from the heart. And so could it be that Manasseh's influence was the downfall of the nation even in later generations? Although, I mean, there are people who did what Manasseh did before Manasseh did it. Uh, Manasseh did it longer and worse. And the people chose to follow Manasseh. I mean, it's certainly not, that statement is not saying that the people didn't do wrong. It's just saying Manasseh was the stumbling block. I mean, but then when Josiah came, I mean, they turned over and followed Josiah and were righteous. Why wasn't the city saved through that action? Well, I, what I said. Jeremiah 3, where Jeremiah says, yeah, Jeremiah 3 and verse uh, 10, yet in spite of all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with all her heart, but rather in deception. And that's in connection with the days of Josiah. Yeah, that's exactly right. But with (laughs) Josiah and God, they only turned to God. External. External. And Manasseh reigned 55 years. And so from the end of his reign to the final destruction of Jerusalem was 60 years? 542 to 586? No. 642 642 to 586. Yeah, whatever that figures up to. 42 plus 14, 56. Yeah. So, I mean... Yeah. They didn't have a lot of time to recover from the bad influence that he... I don't know if that's all there is to that, either. Uh, That's the easy answer, at least. Um, Would... I don't know if this would be 
appropriate to say or not, but like, would it <laughs> not? But like, would it be that his sin had consequences that affected other people, even if they weren't being punished for his sin? Certainly, there are consequences that affect other people, even though there's not punishment and guilt. Right. So I don't know if that would. But be yeah, in the case of the destruction of Jerusalem, I mean, that generation was being punished as well for yeah. their sin. So, but yeah. I mean, there's a sense in which God gets fed up after a while. <laughs> you know, for so many generations of evil, he finally lowers the move. It's not making really you good. I don't think so. Just made a strange noise. It's <laughs> <laughs> been ringing too much. Yeah. <laughs> now I'm starting to hear imagine it's in you. <laughs> I'm an important guy. What can I, I say? feel it. <laughs> yeah. All right, comments and questions through 1818. Is there any particular significance to the the particular sins that are listed? Uh, I mean, other than that they're sort of like comprehensive and they cover everything? That's all I know. Okay, I can work with that. There may be something more. 19 and 20. Yet you say, why should the son not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity? When the son has practiced justice and righteousness and has observed all my statutes and done them, he shall surely live. The person who sins will die. The son will not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity, nor will the father bear the punishment for the son's iniquity. The righteousness of the righteous will be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked will be upon himself. Which is basically a restatement of the principle. That's the way this is. You're judged by what you do. Not by what your father did. So that should be their new proverb. Yeah. Soul that's in a bit shall die. The person who sins will die or whatever. So I, I mean that's really the point. That's what he's saying. Don't blame this on anybody else. Take responsibility for your own actions and you know, accept your own medicine. Comments and questions through 1820. All right, now, there's a, another angle on this. You are not chained to the conduct of your father, but you're also not chained to your own past. <laughs> Wait, that's one more for her. Is she winning now? No, it's fine. Yeah, you're still beating her. Wait, no, they're tied. No. We're, we're having a competition Hello? to see who gets the most phone calls. I got two. Uh-huh. And James got three. But we're not sure exactly how many you and Mom got. Sandra? Uh, okay. Sandra, Larry, and Mom. When did Sandra call you? During the same day. What she want? Yeah, because she couldn't get you on your cell phone. Okay. She didn't. She didn't call me then. I don't think. Natalie made her call. Natalie made her call. She already called, but she found. She's found their house. house. She's in Pennsylvania. She's out of Washington D.C. Had she not found Megan when she last called? No, but I wasn't expecting a call now. But she said Natalie told her she needed to call. That's funny. That's like Aunt Sanders. She was like the call police. Natalie is Megan's mom. Megan's mom. She's she like, know. call your mom. <laughs> and Natalie is your mom. That's weird. Does Megan have something in common? She is hilarious. <laughs> All right, 21 to 29. 
But if a wicked man turns from all his sins which he has committed, keeps all my statutes, and does what is lawful and right, he shall surely live, he shall not die. None of the transgressions which he has committed shall be remembered against him. Because of the righteousness which he has done, he shall live. Do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, says the Lord God, and not that he should turn from his ways and live? But when a righteous man turns away from his righteousness and commits iniquity, and does according to all the abominations that the wicked man does, shall he live? All the righteousness which he has done shall not be remembered, because of the unfaithfulness of which he is guilty, and the sin which he has committed. Because of them he shall die. Yet you say, The way of the Lord is not fair. Hear now, O house of Israel, is it not my way which is fair, and your ways which are not fair? When a righteous man turns away from his righteousness, commits iniquity, and dies in it, it is because of the iniquity which he has done that he dies. Again, when a wicked man turns away from the wickedness which he committed, and does what is lawful and right, he preserves himself alive. Because he considers and turns away from all the transgressions which he committed, he shall surely live, he shall not die. Yet the house of Israel says, The way of the Lord is not fair. O house of Israel, is it not my ways which are fair, and your ways which are not fair? Okay. So, here you've got this principle that the past doesn't determine the present in the life of an individual, not just in the life of succeeding generations. And you've got a wicked man who turns away from his sins. You know, he's been bad and he turns to the Lord, he turns to doing right. What will happen to him? He shall not die. Yeah, he'll live. And the, what about his past misdeeds? Forgot. Yes. You are not locked into the, your, your own past. You can change and God can forgive. And uh, you can reform. You know, you can't just say, well, I've been bad all my life, no use trying to change now. That's not true. You can change, and, and, and that makes a difference. Um, and, and God would prefer that. I mean, God doesn't want, you know, the wicked to die. He'd prefer they, to, they, are, they repent and be able to live. God's always wanting to be able to bless. That's his preference. And, but by the same token, what if a righteous man turns away and commits sin? He'll die. He'll die. And all the righteousness he's done in the past, what will it count for? Nothing. Nothing. You know, a person can stand for, uh, can fall from grace. And you can't, like, bankroll your righteousness like it was a bunch of assets. You know, God's going to judge you based upon where you're at right now and what you're doing right now. It's not a question of, uh, you know, statistical average or quantity or something like that. It's direction. What are you doing? It's, the, it's your current situation before God. Uh, and that, that's both encouraging and frightening. You know, it's encouraging if we've been doing wrong, we can change. But if we've been doing right, we can't just count on that. Well, I've pretty well got my ticket punched. It would be possible for any of us to fall away and lose our salvation. That's, that's kind of a serious thing. And that is what's right. You know, this is, this is God's, um, you know, determination. He doesn't judge us based upon our parents, nor based upon our own past. He judges us based upon our current practice, our current life. 
questions and comments about that. How strong a word is is the turns away? No. I mean, in the sense of, I mean, you, 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 if you're like me, you've been told, you know, so, you know, the general direction that you're going, you could occasionally do something bad, but, you know, if you're going in the right general direction, you're okay. In, as opposed to, I mean, this looks like, you know, the U-turn of repentance or debauchery. I'm not sure if that makes any sense. Well, I don't know that the Bible's written as a legal code defining exact, the exact moment at which one passes from grace into death. I don't know that we can say that. Mm-hmm. Um, I suspect that a lot depends on our love for God and our faith and things like that that the Bible presents as the really important things. You could turn away from your love for God in, with one sin. On the other hand, you may stumble several times and still love God and trust Him. God knows, and He will decide that. Mm-hmm. You know, we certainly should never use the hope of forgiveness as an excuse for sin. I had a guy tell me just recently that he was starting to, he was committing some sins thinking, well, I'll have to just repent and be forgiven afterwards. <laughs> well, that's not exactly what God intends for that. You know? On the other hand, God doesn't want us to be paralyzed thinking that life is, and our relationship with God is some kind of a minefield where we have to be afraid to do anything because we might get something wrong. You know, he wants us to live and to have some security in a continuing relationship with him. It's probably best he did it this way. You know exactly what we'd do if we could figure out some mechanical formula for the exact point of no return, we'd get just as close as we could without going over, you know, whatever. But it doesn't really even work like that. I mean, I think God's got different principles somewhat. And so, that was a long way of saying, I don't know. <laughs> I missed the question on how was your answer. Mm-hmm. The question was better my, than my answer. What was your question? How strong is turn away? At, at, sort of like at what point does repeated stumbling become turning away? Yeah. Or at what point do, on the other side, do isolated good deeds become turning away from evil? And it's kind of, you don't know, frustrating. No, let's just love God and live for him and give ourselves to him and seek to please him and honor him more and more. Because we come to the point of where, you know, our heart is to serve God as perfectly as possible. Because we care about him. We want to serve him. We want to you know, glorify him. That's really living mm-hmm. on the Lord. <coughs> Other questions or comments on that? Thirty to thirty two?
Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, each according to his conduct, declares the Lord God. Repent and turn away from all your transgressions, so that iniquity may not become a stumbling block to you. Cast away from you all your transgressions, which you have committed, and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. For why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord God. Therefore, repent and live. Pretty good uh, exhortation based upon this, don't you think? What should you do? Make yourself a new heart and a new spirit. Yeah. Redirect. Repent. You know, get rid of your transgression, do what's right. After all, why die? It's not inevitable. You don't have to. You can do what's right. Why don't you? Wouldn't you be better off? That makes logical sense to me. Now, this can't be superficial. So he says, make yourself a new heart and a new spirit. You know, not just conforming externally, but really, you know, living for God. I mean, that's the thing about the question you asked, Sarah, is that you know, if we how we try to answer that question, if we try to define some point, it becomes too external a lot of times. And really, this is a whole matter of the heart and spirit. And we need a new heart and spirit that really loves God, that lives for Him, and seeks Him. It's not just a matter of doing some things. Well, it's sort of like, I mean, I wouldn't want Chris just to have a set of mechanical things to do for me because he thinks that's what he's got to do. You want him to love you and do it for that. And God's the same way. He doesn't want a mechanical list and you're trying to just get it that way. He wants our whole heart. You're right. So the same, you know, so from that standpoint it makes sense. You know, and then if you had a list you just try to do the minimum and just get by and that's, you know, I wouldn't think much of that in a husband and God doesn't want his children like that. It's shallow. That is. But sometimes we think that way. You know, that's a Definitely. danger for us in, in just not being as, uh, I don't know, it's just, it just becomes something too, you know, too much trying to, to you know, complete the, the requirements and not, it doesn't involve our real person. Um, and sometimes we, I've been, thinking about this a little bit. You know, sometimes we work on techniques of... Wow. Hopefully that's for me. Hello. Why? So you can win? Uh-huh. They're, they're ahead now, aren't they? Uh, yeah, here you go. Oh, no! <laughs> <laughs> oh! Hey. Oh, no, no. Okay. Why did you want it to be for him? Because we're not in competition. Oh. We're now on counts for both of you, so, you're, so he's at seven, you're at six. Great. Whoa, all together we're at 18. How? 18 phone calls in three hours. Two now? Yes. Yes. Mom, Chelsea's mm-hmm. late. You're right. We're not six yet. That's a lot of calls. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what time was she supposed to come? She doesn't think it's but I thought that was being a little optimistic. <laughs> they're leaving the church building at 6. <laughs> well, actually, she said 6 in there, so they're leaving at 5.45. Oh, 
but still sick for you to be optimistic. And if they didn't leave, they'll sleep for them. They shouldn't be here for another 10 or 15 minutes. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Especially on a night, on an evening. Hey. On a Tuesday night. That was funny. Oh, maybe can you pause that? Okay. Mm. I don't know how to pause it. Okay. Tash, tash, no. That one's not going. No. No. Where is it? Our audio commentary is going to have a lot of... Okay. Well, could, can we continue, could we continue our old plan, or that's impossible? Hey, I'm not sure. Can I just hit stop? Oh, wait, pause. Uh, and so I was talking about the idea that sometimes when we are dealing even with sins, we think a lot in terms of the techniques of overcoming sin. When really we probably need to think more about the heart, you know, our love for God and things like that. What do you mean by a technique? Oh, you know, here's what you need to do. You know, here's the steps you need to go through. You know, and we come up with some sort of a, you know, mechanical way of, you know, making ourselves not do wrong. I'm not against that. I'm just saying sometimes that's not adequate. Like, don't drive past the bar. Yes, exactly. If there's not a new heart and a new spirit, it's not going to work. We're not going to do well. It's not, just, it's not just a matter we didn't learn the right techniques to avoid sin. Sometimes it's a matter we don't have a heart to avoid it. We don't have the right spirit. We don't really love God. And if you don't love God, I don't care what kind of, you know, things you learn about how to not do things that are wrong, it's not going to change anything. So, I mean, I think, it's, I think it's helpful what you see in the Bible, that repentance is so deep. It's, you know, laying aside the old man and putting on the new man. It's a radical reformation from the heart and spirit out. It's a new birth. It's starting all over again. And that's what you see even here. So that's what he's telling him to do. Take advantage of the opportunity to live. Repent with a new heart and a new spirit. Comments and questions? of things like addictions like alcoholism for example we have an addiction and that causes you to sin and you may be able to improve that so that you fall less in that sense but it's still there and I mean you know, I've heard the, the phrase well if you really loved God then it wouldn't be any problem at all to stop this addiction. So therefore, since you can't, you must not. And I'm, I sometimes wonder how, first how that makes the people who hear that feel, but, you know, just whether there's, that's accurate or not. Well, I think it is accurate in the sense that sin is slavery. We are enslaved to sin, and Jesus is the only one who can release us. And that I'm not against the concept of techniques. I think there's some in the Bible. <laughs> like, you know, making no provision for the flesh and cutting off the hand and plucking out the eye. I'm saying that the techniques without 
the heart won't work. I think when we really turn to the Lord and we love Him and we change our heart and we follow what He teaches, He has the power to break the bonds of the sinful habit as well. And, and really, that's, that's the only way that's going to, to be effectively broken. We may be able to clean up ourselves somewhat, but we don't really, we don't really turn to God without really a, a conversion to Him from the heart. Uh, I certainly don't think we have the right to excuse our misbehavior on addiction. Not that that's not. There is addiction. No doubt about that. And we would expect that from the Bible. But that is not an excuse for what we're doing. Other questions and comments? All right, well, maybe that's a good place for us to stop for tonight.